Okay, well, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 5 and 6. Um, the Bibles in the pews in front of you, you can use those, page 4 and 5. And the golden colored, Zach, can you hold that up? The golden colored Bibles there are Livingstone Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, you can take that. That is our gift to you. The brown ones belong to Portico, who meets here in the morning. So uh, don't run off with those, please. Well, have you ever had the, uh, the good news, bad news conversation uh, with somebody? Maybe you were the one who approach them or they approach you and it's, you know, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news, right? Which one do you want first? Do you want the good news or do you want the bad news? Bad news. news. All right. Well, when we tell the story of the Bible, this is kind of how it works. And we've been talking about this a little bit with this pattern of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's kind of how the Bible unfolds. And we've seen It starts out with the good news, right? It starts out with creation in chapters 1 and 2. Everything is good. God sees everything that he has made, and it's very good. But quickly, very quickly, in chapter 3, things start to spiral out of control. We're confronted with the bad news. The bad news of, of Adam and Eve's sin, of their rebellion against God, and how all of humanity plummets into sin. So things get bad very quickly. But in the midst of that, in the midst of of the sin and the fall, there are glimmers of hope. And we saw a couple of those in chapter 3. We're going to see a few more of those uh, today. There are glimmers of hope in the midst of the bad news. So this is reflected in the title of the message today. The title is, In Adam All Die, But... So in Adam All Die... But And some of those glimmers of hope that we have seen, we saw first uh, in the garden, in, after Adam and Eve have, have sinned against God and rebelled against God, Genesis 3.15, which we call the Proto-Evangelium, it's the early gospel, it's the first proclamation of hope when God says the seed of the woman will crush the head, the, the heel of the, seed, of the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And then at the end of the chapter, in chapter 3, verse 21, Adam and Eve are are clothed with a skin from an animal. Their nakedness and their shame are clothed. And in order for them to be clothed, an animal had to die. So that's the first time that death is introduced. And just as we talked about in our catechism question, Christ is that substitutionary sacrifice. He's that substitutionary atonement for our sin. So even already in Genesis there, there's a picture of God having to kill something, of death needing to occur for our sin to be covered and our shame to be covered. In chapter 4, Cain is not killed. Uh, God spares him. In the end of chapter 4, people call on the name of the Lord. So that brings us uh, to our, our passage today. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses, verse 1 through chapter 6, 8. Kind of the big idea is that despite the fallenness and sinfulness of all people, God still shows mercy and points us to the hope of redemption. Despite the fallenness and sinfulness of all people, God still shows mercy and points us 
to the hope of redemption. And I think that's really exemplified in the passage we're going to be looking at today. So two key questions that we looked at a couple weeks ago. The first question is related to the fall. Why are things as they are? Why is the world in the condition that it's in? And the second is related to redemption. How can these things be put right? Let's go to God's word together and see. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And we're not going to read the whole chapter. Excuse me. Um, We're not going to read the whole chapter, but I will tell you uh, the verses that we're reading. And then we're going to pick up in chapter 6 and read verses uh, 6, 1 through 8. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. Now skip down to verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And then jump down to verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, as we come this afternoon to your word, we pray that you would show us who you are. Show us your truth. Uh, God, we come to a passage that has uh, some difficult things difficult to understand, difficult to wrap our minds around. And Lord, we ask that you would give us insight, uh, that you would give us 
trust in you, trust in your word, that we would know you more, that we would grow and be changed by this word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, just kind of a recap of some things we've talked about, a little bit of the structure of Genesis. We talked about in the first, the opening message of this series, how Genesis is structured around this idea of the, the Toledot. It's the generations. These are the generations of fill in the blank. And that occurs 11 times throughout Genesis. And that's a big kind of clue about how we should separate some of these sections. It kind of gives us a clue of why we go Genesis 5, 1 through 6, 8. And then we saw in chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now we come to the first generation list that lists a person. And we see in Genesis 5, 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And if you, if you look down to Genesis 6, 9, it says these are the generations of Noah. And that's going to be how the language looks throughout the rest of Genesis. These are the generations of so-and-so. But we have a different order here. It says this is the book of the generations of Adam. And you'll remember that this phrase here connects us to the New Testament. Because the very first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, says, the book of the genealogy, which is the same word for generations, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So there's this connection. The New Testament writers are not letting us get away from Genesis. They're connecting everything back to the beginning. We see the genealogy in Matthew then following that. And we've been talking about this, that Genesis points us to Jesus. So this this history of people, this list of these generations aren't just random. They're not just there for no, for no reason. God is showing us how things all tie together and pointing to some of these things in the history of redemption. So that's kind of structurally how this passage kind of works. So let's dig into this a little bit. We're going to just look at chapter 5 first, all here in, in kind of one section. This first section is, I've called it the first family tree and two glimmers of hope. The first family tree and two glimmers of hope here in chapter 5. So the genealogy of Adam starts off, it says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So pointing us back to Genesis 1. And then it says something interesting here in verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now this isn't saying that humans were no longer made in the image of God after the fall. We are still created in the image of God. But now we bear the image of Adam, our first father. So that when we talk about original sin and how can sin be passed down on to the next generations we see that here humans adam's first son his first kids were made in his own image also so there's that idea of our humanity and that fallen nature the pattern here then so it says adam lived 130 years fathered a son had other sons and daughters we see this in verse 4 adam after he fathered seth or the days, excuse me, of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. All the days of Adam 
that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And so we see this same, if you look through the next several sections, it's the same pattern that keeps happening. You know, they lived so many years, fathered so-and-so, they lived this many years, had other sons and daughters, this was their years, and they died. And so that is repeated throughout this chapter, but the pattern is broken two times. And that's where we're going to see the glimmers of hope in the two times that this pattern is broken. The first one is in Enoch, and that starts in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, all of the other people, it simply says, so-and-so lived after they fathered so-and-so, right? This says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. It doesn't just say that Enoch lived. It says that Enoch walked with God. And that's not all about Enoch. Look at verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch escaped death. This is our first picture, our first clear picture in the Bible of, in Adam all die, but, right? This is our first picture of that, and he died, and he died, and he died, but God took this one. Enoch walked with God, and God took him. There's a very powerful message in this, Imagine yourself being a young Israelite child, being told the stories of, of the scriptures, being, having your parents read Genesis to you for the first time, right? And you're, here, you know, you're probably getting to whoever, you know, Jared, and you're like, Dad, come on, like, okay, I get it, this guy lived a long time and he died. Well, wait, son, right? Wait, it gets better. Enoch walked with God, son. Walk with God and you will live and you won't die like all these other people died. Walk with God. The second is Noah, the second glimmer of hope in verse 28. We're introduced here to Lamech. This is not the same Lamech as the Lamech in chapter 4. Yeah, thank goodness. This is the Lamech from the line of Seth, not from the line of Cain. And this Lamech prophesies about his son, Verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah here sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. If you look there, uh, there should be a footnote if you have the ESV in verse, uh, verse 29 there, the word relief. Uh, In these Bibles here, it's in number seven. You look down below, and it will say, Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. So there's there's kind of a play on words happening, and we're going to have a whole bunch more of those, so kind of stay tuned for those. But this is the first picture of a solution to the curse that was introduced in chapter three. God cursed the ground. God made work difficult. And here we're given a picture of, that the Lord, out of the ground that the Lord cursed, this one, Noah, is going to give them relief from the work and from the painful toil of our hands. So there's a lot of rhyming words that happen here. Uh, the words relief and work and, and hands are all connected. We'll look at that a little bit more 
in chapter 6. Well, so, okay, what's the big deal? Like, we have all these names, we have these, like, kind of these cryptic, maybe, promises. What are these, what is this, how is this helping us answer the questions of the fall? Why are things the way they are? How is this helping us answer the questions about redemption? How can things be put right? I mean, aren't these glimmers of hope just some feel-good stories that some ancient people wrote to, again, like, just tell their kids some stories? You know, Enoch, hey, you don't have to be afraid of death, right? Or Noah, we can have relief from a hard life. The truth is, none of us live worry-free lives, right? We've all got cares, we've all got trials in this world. I'm not sure, you know, what it is for you. Maybe it's paying the bills on time. Maybe it's relational strife or family drama, Maybe it's job security issues. Maybe it's just big existential questions, you know, college students probably wrestling with these things. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? What am I going to do when I graduate in a few weeks? What am I going to do when I have to, you know, go into the real world and get a job? And some of us have been in the real world for a while, and we're still asking these questions, right? What am I doing with my life? Why am I here? What's the purpose of all of this? The good news is that God has not left us without these glimmers of hope, even in these early chapters of Genesis. But before we come to the next glimmer of hope, we need to look at the baddest of bad news, the utter darkness of the human condition. This is our second section, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Call this, the first family tree's poisoned root and poisoned fruit. The first family trees, poisoned root and poisoned fruit. I listened to a podcast a couple weeks ago by a pastor. He's a pastor of uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a very famous uh, church. Um, James Montgomery Boyce was the pastor there, and then Phil Riken was the pastor, and now it's a guy named Liam Gallagher, and he was on a podcast that I listened to. And the title of the podcast was Braving Hard Passages, and he was saying, Early on in, in your ministry, it was a podcast for pastors, he's saying early on in your ministry, you should preach hard passages. Don't shy away from, from difficult passages in scripture because you need to dig in, you need to help your people uh, dig in. So here we go. We're here, right? This is Genesis 6, 1 through 8. It's probably about as crazy as it gets. Um, there's been a ton of debate about these verses. There's been so much ink spilled over these things, probably the most debated stuff that's in Genesis. Um, I know. I remember as an early Christian, I used to get really tripped up on these things. Uh, I was trying to always like find the answers: who are the sons of God, right? Who are the Nephilim, and and what's going on here? But then, because I want you know, I wanted answers for everything. But then I made a big mistake. I went to seminary, right, <laughs> and. More education was just going to solve my issues, right? It was going to answer all my questions. Jesse's shaking his head. He's been through it. No, it's actually going to give you more because you're going to have to read all these crazy people who have all these crazy ideas about every issue under the sun. And you're like, ah! So, more education wasn't the answer. Um, in, fact, in fact, I think it's actually the opposite. <laughs> I think the opposite is simple trust in God and in his word. 
simple trust that he's given us his word. We don't all need to be theologians. We don't all need to have the most advanced study tools. We don't need to look things up in Greek and Hebrew. That can be helpful, but trusting God, trusting his word as he's revealed it to us. Like I talked about with the kids, the Bible is not this puzzle book. It's not this mystery that needs to be unlocked. There are some hard things in the Bible, and we want to deal with them. But this is God's word that he has inspired, that he has revealed to us. And he's communicated it to us in human words, right? That's what we use. We speak in words. We hear words. We understand words. God had to use human words and human language to to give us his word. So that's kind of important, just a little background there. It's important to keep those things in mind as we go into these next two sections. So first here, verses 1 through 3. When man began to multiply, one through four, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So the big question, who are these sons of God, right? It's not very clear. Uh, we're not really given a lot of details. There's, there's three pretty popular views that are pretty kind of accepted in Uh, people I would read and trust. The first is that they're fallen angels. Um, This was probably the most popular view in early church history. It's gained some more prominence lately. Um, That's one view. These sons of God are fallen angels. Second view is that they are earthly kings or earthly rulers. Um, There's a lot of different places in scripture where that kind of language will be used of, of kings and rulers. The third view, and there's more than this, but these are the three most popular. The third is that these are descendants of Seth. So these are descendants of the godly line, the sons of God. And the, the ones, the people who they married were the descendants of Cain, the ungodly line. So the women that they married. And so there's this theme of intermarriage, which again, you're going to see that all throughout the Old Testament. God telling his people not to intermarry with, with other nations. So those are the options for that. Second, who are the Nephilim? And this is the one that really used to like, I used to just rack my brain trying to figure out. Uh, these giants that were introduced to in, in verse 4. They were on the earth. Uh, they had children with the daughters of man. Bore children. They were the mighty men who were of old. The men of renown. These, these giants, the Nephilim. And we actually do see them listed again after the flood. So there's a lot of questions that come up about that. Okay, you ready for the answer? I don't know. Um, I think it's similar to the, you know, the question about the ages of, of people listed in Genesis 5. There's a, you see like 900 and some years, and you're like, what? That's crazy. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. I don't know who these sons of God were. I don't know who these Nephilim were. Not that it's not important. You know, if you want to go research this, there's plenty to read. Um, but I want to give you an encouragement. Gordon Wenham, in his commentary, he gives us, I think, a health, healthy corrective to some over-speculation. And he's talking here about chapter 5. But he says, If post-enlightenment readers delight in chronological computations with a view to demonstrating the implausibility of Genesis's timescale, these interests are far removed from the intention of Genesis. 
He's saying the, the writer of Genesis doesn't care, in a sense, about all these ages. He doesn't care about who the sons of God are and who the Nephilim are. If this was important for our salvation, we would know, right? It would be clearly explained in a footnote or in a you know, parentheses, by the way, here's who the sons of God are. That's not explained to us, so I'd encourage us, you know, don't get hung up on that. That's, that's not the main focus of the narrative here. And don't, don't shipwreck your faith. Don't, don't lose your trust in God's word because of something like this that is difficult, because of a few obscure verses that you can't figure out. You know, it's like, maybe instructions for a, for a game or instructions for a child's toy, right? You get the instructions and I'm like, kids get a new game and I get the instruction book out and I'm like, I gotta read every single, I gotta make sure you guys aren't cheating. I gotta, you know, I gotta know what's going on, right? I gotta have all the answers or you're putting a, putting a toy together and it's just like, you know, obviously maybe translated from another language or it's just, it's not clear at all. And you're just like, ah, well, you don't, you don't go and burn the instructions and, and throw the toy in the garbage or throw the game in the garbage, right? You, you work with it. You try to figure things out. Maybe you get help. You ask somebody else, hey, like, come, come help me look at this. Let's figure this out. Or you Google it, right? Like, I'm sure somebody else has probably dealt with the same frustration with that. But again, the Bible is not on the same level as an instruction manual for a game or for a toy. But you kind of get the point, right? It's It's... We don't see everything clearly. We don't understand everything clearly all the time. But we don't have to. We don't have to have every minute detail figured out. So this, is, this kind of leads into something I want to mention to you just about reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible. Theologians call this the, the analogy of faith. You may have heard this term before, the analogy of faith. It's basically the question of how do we interpret difficult passages in the Bible? And in the Westminster Confession, which is our, our denomination's confession of faith, chapter one is on, on the scriptures. It's about the Bible. I'd really encourage you, you can find it online, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter one. You know, go home and read the whole thing. But uh, this is... This is mentioned in there um, in chapter 1.9. And this is really, this was a key principle in the Protestant Reformation, this idea of the analogy of faith. And here's what, here's what they said. They said, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, so they're saying, each scripture has one clear meaning, okay? So when there's any question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So saying if you, if you come across a difficult passage in the Bible, there's probably going to be other places in the Bible that are going to help you understand that. And you need to go to those places that are more clear to understand the places that are less clear, so if you've got a Bible with cross-references in it, right, that's a helpful thing. You've got a little A, B, C, D, and pointing you to, so you go to this verse, and oh, that talks about this same topic, and then you go back, and you, you kind of cross-reference things, and you try to figure it out. And we have, you know, obviously we have issues with language, right? There's things in the, in the Hebrew especially, there's a lot of poetry, and there's a lot of connected words that don't come out in the English. We have 
huge cultural gaps, right, between us and, and the time that this was written. So we need help sometimes in figuring some of these things out. Well, the difficulties here in one, verses 1 through 4, um, there's many other passages that shed light on it, on these ideas. Um, or sorry, in verses 1 through 4, there's not many There are not many other passages that shed light on verses 1 through 4. So these interpretive difficulties remain. Uh, But we can apply this analogy of faith, this idea of interpreting difficult scriptures with more clear scriptures in the next section in verses 5 through 7 because there are some very difficult things here as well. So verses 5 through 7, I call this section uprooting the wicked tree and a glimmer of hope uprooting the wicked tree and a glimmer of hope. Begins with a very straightforward explanation of the human condition. Some interesting language here. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. If you go back to verse 2, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. So I think there's a, a contrast going on here about what God is seeing and what they are seeing. You might remember another time where we saw that God saw in Genesis 1.31, at the end of the, the creation of the sixth day, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So it's a stark contrast from Genesis 1.31, God saw everything and it was very good, to now this, this drastic 180, everything from very good to every intention, second half of verse 5 there, he saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This, this, these words are striking here. Every intention, only evil continually. It's, it's so pervasive. It's just to the, to the root of who we are. And, and we call this total depravity, right? That we are we are sin sick, we are dead in our sin, we can do nothing on our own to please God. This language here supports that idea that we are wicked to the core. And this wasn't just this idea of, of total depravity, this isn't just something that was created by the Israelite people to help explain their suffering at the hands of, of enemy nations, right? It's not something that the early Christians made up so that they could explain their suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire. Not something that Calvinists invented at the Synod of Dort in the 1600s, right? This is the testimony of Scripture. In Adam all die. We're born in sin. We live our lives in sin. And we die in sin. Sin affects everything to the core of our being. Now what this doesn't say, what total depravity doesn't say, is that we are as bad as we could be. And that is because of God's grace and because of God's mercy. And these glimmers of hope that we're seeing here in the early chapters of Genesis are showing that. That God doesn't allow us to carry out our own wicked schemes to the fullest. He intervenes. He comes in with his grace and his mercy. Romans 6.23, probably familiar with this verse. For the wages of sin is death, 
But, I'm going to pause and come back to that. But for the wages of sin is death, but. We come to the next difficult passage here. This part, verses 6 and 7, where this analogy of faith is, is very important and very necessary. Verses 6 and 7 say, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. A couple of things that are helpful here. We need to understand the immediate context of what's going on here. Uh, there are some, some puns in the Hebrew here that, again, in the English, they just they don't come across, but these words that are connected and, and very much bringing out the meaning. And it's here in 6.6 6 and then back in 5.29. So the words relief and work and painful toil, which is talking about Noah bringing relief from the, the work and the painful toil, those words are all puns on the words regret and made and grieved. So there's, there's a connection here about Noah being the one who's going to rescue God's people and God saying, I regret that I made these people. This is the first clue that we have to read this carefully and not just, not just breeze through this and be, oh, God regrets and that he must just be like that. Second, we need to understand anthropomorphism in the Bible. Okay, that's a huge word, anthropomorphism. Taken from two, word, two Greek words, anthropos, which means human, and morphos, which means form or shape. So it's basically describing non-human things using human language. So it's using human language to describe God or to describe animals or to describe inanimate objects. We see this all the time in cartoon characters, right? Or in sports mascots. We have Bucky Badger, right? The guy's walking around with, as Bucky Badger and talking to people. Well, that's anthropomorphism, right? That's making this badger, which can't walk and talk and doesn't have words, come to life and look and act like a human. So it's, it's human language. It's human emotions that are attributed to things that are not human. And again, all we have is words, right? All God has given us is words. There's no, there's no like cryptic symbol that you know, we could like put on a flashcard and when we get to some point in the Bible, God is like this, right? Because even if there was that, we would need words to describe that, right? We would need words to be able to explain, oh, here's what this symbol means. So we always have to rely on words. And we're always going to be, in some way, we're always going to be limited by language, so when we, whenever we're describing God, when we're describing God here as regretting and being sorry, we have to use human language and human emotions to do that. So what does it mean that God regretted, that God was sorry? Again, I think we need to go to other scriptures to get some help with this. And there are several of them. We're just going to look at one in particular. You don't need to turn there, but if you're jotting notes down, you can go look at it later. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have Samuel coming and confronting Saul and talking about God taking the kingdom away from him. And if you remember, the people of Israel, they wanted a king like all the other nations around them. They chose their own type of king. They didn't wait on God and choose the king that God wanted. So in 1 Samuel 15, verse 11, God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, 
for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And then jump down to verse 35 at the end of the chapter. It says, The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So you see that word regret used twice there. He regrets that he had made Saul and made him king over Israel. But in, in between those two, in verses 28 and 29 of 1 Samuel 15, Samuel comes to Saul, and listen what, to what Samuel says to Saul. He says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, to David, right? And then this is just really interesting. He says, And also, the glory of Israel, which is the name for God, he's calling God the glory of Israel. He says, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So sandwiched in between these two mentions of God regretting is this phrase, he is not a man. Okay? Again, we have to use human language, but it's saying even our understanding of God regretting, it can't be, he's not a man. He doesn't regret in the way that we regret. So again, human language, trying to understand this, trying to communicate these things, reiterating that that God is not a man, and regret for God is not like human regret. Meredith Klein, he says this, he says, speaking of God and, and regretting, he says, his change of mind indicates a sovereign purpose to reverse what he had done to unmake what he had made. And we're going to see this play out next week, especially in the story of the flood. So this is important that we kind of get a picture of what's happening and what's coming here. Another thing uh, that's, that's important here is there are, uh, there are more puns that are happening here. And the words regret and blot out and Noah and finding favor or grace, those words are all connected. So there's a lot going on here, these passages about Noah and about God's regret and what God is doing. Those things are all kind of connected there. So the same subject matter that we saw in in chapter 5, verse 29, about the glimmer of hope, we come to it again here in chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this time it's more than just a relief from the curse of the ground. This time it's going to be the very rescue from death and from the judgment of God that is going to be brought on the entire world at the flood. When God blots out man and he blots out animals and he blots out creeping things and birds. In Adam all die. But... Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that free gift is by grace. The but of Noah is grace. It's that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Not because he was a good guy, But God showed him his grace. God said, I'm going to rescue people. I'm going to rescue you and your family. So this huge picture of grace, of being saved from God's judgment, comes here 
in this chapter. And we saw it in Ephesians 2, right? We've mentioned this several times. We preached through Ephesians several months ago. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, right? Talking about how we're walking. Enoch walked with God. We used to walk in the ways of the world. We used to walk in our sinful nature. But Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The darkest depth of human depravity is met by the irresistible grace of God. Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's the first explicit mention of grace in the Bible, and it stands in stark contrast to the wickedness and rebellion of humans. And this is what the cross was all about, wasn't it? The darkest moment in human history the perfect son of God being hung on a cross, being punished as a criminal for something he hadn't done, sinless. And there he is in our place, right? We deserve the judgment. We're like the people in the days of Noah who deserve the flood to come and just wipe us out. We deserve judgment for our sin. And God puts his son up on that cross. And in that moment of utter darkness, the light just bursts forth, and God's grace is shown, right? And we're, we're promised that if we turn to him in faith, if we put our trust in him, that judgment passes over us. And Christ bore that. He took on that judgment. So again, is Genesis relevant for us today? I would say yes, it's, it's as relevant as ever. The world needs to hear this message They need to hear the message of the gospel that starts way back when God created the world. They need to be pointed to the one, the perfect son of God, who came and lived in this sin-sick world, took our sin upon him, died in our place, and rose again so that we might have new life. Let's trust in him. Let's pray. Father, again, we just stand in awe of, of you, of, of what you've done throughout human history to rescue sinners from death and judgment, a death and judgment that we all deserve, to give us hope, to give us new life in Christ. God, I pray for all of us here, wherever we're at in our in our spiritual journey, in our walk with you. God, that we would look to you. That we would look to you as the only hope of salvation, the only one who can rescue us from sin, from ourselves, from your wrath, and from the wickedness of this world. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the message of hope that was proclaimed way back in the days of Noah and is continually proclaimed today that there is hope in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.